Hi there and welcome. The First Christian Church podcast ministry features the teaching and preaching of the First Christian Church in downtown Roseburg, Oregon. Here's today's message. We're in a series called Jesus Before Christ, and what we're doing is we're looking at Old Testament stories that, um, that show us, that reveal to us Jesus long before Christmas. For hundreds and hundreds of years in the New Testament, uh, followers of Jesus and the, and the way of Jesus were waiting for this Messiah. And part of the reason uh, we honor uh, the Advent portion of the church calendar is because it is a symbolic gesture of what the Jewish people did for hundreds and hundreds of years. So in the weeks leading up to Christmas, as we light one of the different candles, it shows our expectancy as we patiently wait for Christmas Day. And yet we know when we're going to light that final candle, don't we? We're going to light it on Christmas morning. We know there's an end in sight. For the Jewish people, for, for many, many, many years, there was no timeline for their waiting. In fact, just think to yourself, if someone described to you a holiday like Christmas, but they didn't tell you when we would celebrate it. So there's going to be this awesome day, and we're going to decorate our houses, and we're going to put lights up on our, uh, on our houses, and we're going to grab trees and put them inside. I know that sounds weird, but we're going to do that. We're going to put lights on. But under the tree, there's presents for everyone, and we're going to exchange gifts, and we're going to have this wonderful time, and we're going to celebrate this time of year. And there's all these excuses to eat far more sugar than we should during this time of year, and everybody just lets it go because it's okay. It's Christmas. We just don't know when we're going to celebrate it. It's coming. The day is coming. The season is coming. But you can't plan your life around it. You can't plan your calendar. This is what the Jewish people were doing on something far more significant than just the holiday season. They were waiting for a Savior for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so the reason we do the lighting of the Advent candle hopefully gives you pause to consider what we're doing symbolically. The Jewish people did in reality for hundreds and hundreds of years. John in one, uh, John chapter 1 and verse 4 says this, in him was life and the light, I'm sorry, in him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. And so part of the reason we want to examine some of the Old Testament stories of Jesus long before Christmas is to help us identify what it was like for the Jewish people to wait for this blessed Savior, this Messiah, the Christ to come, but also to appreciate the beauty of what the Old Testament points us to. So in these stories are places where God manifests himself in a visible or an audible way. And every single time, it points to the ultimate expression of who God is, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. So today, we look at Nebuchadnezzar and the furnace, one of my favorite stories from the Old Testament. So we're going to begin reading in Daniel chapter 3 and verse 14. While we're reading these verses, I want you to pay special attention to every time the word God shows up. You're going to see different ways that it shows up. There's going to be a lowercase God, and there's going to be an uppercase God. I want you to see the conversation between Nebuchadnezzar and these three young men, and pay special attention to when the word God shows up. We're reading in verse 14, it says this, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
that you do not serve, everyone say, my gods, or worship the golden image that I have set up. Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, we don't need to think about it. Verse 17, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Verse 19, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven more times than it was usually heated. What that's in reference to is not necessarily the degrees, but how much fuel to use for the fire. He said, let's put in seven more uh, of the resources we have to burn this fire. Verse 20 says this, and he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Verse 22. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace was overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell by bound into the burning fiery furnace then king nebuchadnezzar was astonished the king james says astonished astonished and rose up in haste he declared to his counselors hold up hold up did we not cast three men bound into the fire they answered and said to the king true o king he answered and said but i see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, in other words, the rulers of the different areas, and the king's counselors gathered together. Verse 28, and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of these men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Verse 29, Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. And their house is laid in ruin, for there is no other God 
who was able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is an incredible story, is it not? We're in the 6th century, 600 years before Christ, and we're talking about Babylon. Babylon is the preeminent power in the world. And their strategy when they would conquer a nation would be a subjugation through assimilation. They would conquer their other nations through assimilation. So this is what they would do. They would conquer a nation and they would send, the, they would deport and exile anyone who was in the professional classes. So we're talking about artisans and scholars and writers and scribes and military officials and government officials. They would all live in Babylon away from the culture that they grew up in and they would be indoctrinated or assimilated into Babylonian culture. And over the course of the long term, what would happen in a generation or two is all of a sudden you would have these young professionals who have been raised up now in Babylonian culture who have forgotten their ways of whatever they grew up. In a generation or two, they would lose their own distinct culture, their own distinct values, their own distinct uh, idiosyncrasies of their own culture. Now, Nebuchadnezzar had decided to build a giant image of gold 90 feet high. He surrounded it with a full orchestra, and he put it in a very public place. And what he asked the people to do, the decree was very simple. When you heard the band sound, when you hear them start to play, you are to face the image, and you are to bow down and worship the image. Now, what's interesting is if you look back in the verses, he doesn't say to worship the gods. He doesn't say to worship the God of the image. He simply says to worship the image. What's interesting, according to other historical documents around this time, is that the image doesn't have a name. It doesn't represent one God in the Babylonian culture. In fact, it represents all the gods together. Now think about it, it's a multicultural, multi-ethnic, it's a pluris, plura, uh, plura, pro, what is it? What's the word? Let me read it. Pro, pluralistic city. This means that they have all of these different kinds of cultures representing. So when they would go and they would defeat a nation and they would, bring, they would exile those young professionals back to Babylon culture, uh, all of a sudden those young people would bring elements of their culture back with them. And so over the course of time, as they conquered all of these different nations, it was a multi-ethnic and a multicultural society. The image was Nebuchadnezzar's way of saying, I'm not asking you that you worship my God, I'm asking asking us to allow everyone to worship their gods. He says, I don't want you to worship and acknowledge your God solely. I want you to embrace all of these other gods in addition to your God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In other words, do what you want in private, but in public at the appointed time, I need you to fall in line with everyone else. He was asking them to privatize their faith. In private, do what you want, but in public, you must be like everyone else. In your notes, if you're following, our culture may not ever ask us to deny our faith, but they will insist we privatize our faith. Our culture may not ever ask us to deny our faith, but they will insist we privatize our faith. Now, this seems like a benign request. 
Nebuchadnezzar says, I don't, I don't need you to deny the Lord God Almighty. His image was probably up there as well, according to historians. But I want you to privatize your faith so that in public, when the band sounds, we all agree that we're all going to worship not just your God, but we're going to worship all the gods together. Don't deny your faith. Just keep it on the down low and resist the urge to live it out so publicly. Pray, read your scriptures, go to synagogue on your own time. But everywhere else, let's embrace everyone's faith. Now, what's happening here in Daniel chapter 3 will happen to you at some point in your life. How does this reality affect our culture today? Our culture may not ever ask us to deny our faith, but they will insist we privatize our faith. Let's just talk about business practices for a second. If you're in a, if you're in a field of business where the norm... Um, is to cut corners. The norm is to be a little bit shady on your reporting. The norm is to cheat a little here and there. In fact, you're in a business perhaps where if you don't do these things, you will be left behind. And you're forced to make that decision. And you as a follower of Jesus, for the sake of your business, for the sake of your bankroll, for the sake of your income, decide to also be a little bit shady, also decide to cheat a little bit, also decide to fudge the numbers a little bit, also decide to, uh, to, to, to clock in late and to clock out early, all of these little things. If you decide to do that, guess what? You're bowing down to an image because you've decided to privatize your faith for the sake of your own benefit. Our culture will never ask us probably to deny our faith. That's not the kind of persecution that you and I will ever face. But will they, what they will do is ask us to privatize it, to keep it siloed, to keep it, on a, uh, to keep it hidden, to keep it small. It's fine if you go to church on Sunday morning, don't, but don't bring that stuff with you to work. Don't bring your faith with you. Don't walk it out. Don't live it out. Sundays are for church. The rest of your week, you're with us. How else does this show up? Well, I would, I would venture to say it shows up in our sexual ethics. I read about this study that the Oxford University Press did about 18 years ago. And it was a study of the sexual behavior of young people. And the study featured two groups of unmarried college-educated males aged 18 to 23. Two groups of unmarried, college-educated males, 18 to 23. One group was raised in churches and families where they valued staying abstinent till marriage. The second group didn't see anything wrong with sex outside of marriage, let alone before marriage. And when they caught up to these individuals later in their life, what they realized is once they got married, they found out that the first group that valued abstinence until marriage, about 23% were virgins when they got married. In the second group that didn't see anything wrong with sex outside of marriage, let alone before marriage, they found out that 28% were virgins when they got married. The difference between the one group and the other group was negligible. The study basically concluded this. 
when our culture tells you one thing and your faith tells you the other, you will likely believe what the culture tells you. Why? Because we've privatized our faith. So you think about business practices, you think about sexual ethics, you think about other ways in your life, all of these kinds of societies that affirm every faith put this pressure on us to assimilate to the public culture by privatizing our faith. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't necessarily living in silos, by the way. They were in the culture. They were deeply involved in the culture. They were all working in public service for the government. They loved their community. They prayed and they worked for the prosperity of their community. But when they were asked to privatize their faith, they refused. And we must ask ourselves the question, will we refuse to privatize our faith? And here's the thing. If you don't think you've ever been put in a position to privatize your faith, it is likely because you already have. We see their response to this decree from Nebuchadnezzar in verse 17. Verse 17 says this, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Verse 18, But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Listen to their voices. They're saying this. We believe that God can save us. We believe he will save us. He can and he will. And if not, we're still not going to bow down. We serve and love God for himself, not necessarily for what we can get out of him. And it's difficult when it appears that God may not show up for us. What we have to be careful is loving and serving God because of our own agenda of what we might believe would be best. I've, I've had the privilege of speaking to people in some of their dark moments, and oftentimes coming out of our dark moments, I've heard similar things to this, where people will say, well, I've trusted God, I lived a good life, and I asked him for something really, really important, and he didn't come through, so I'm out. And on those moments, it's difficult because what we find ourselves doing is we trust God, plus this, plus this, plus this, plus this. Uh, the voices of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He will rescue us, and if not, it doesn't matter. We trust him, period, end of story. So they didn't doubt God's ability, but neither did they presume to know God's will. And in this, they agreed with Job. Job is a painful book to read, but all throughout the book of Job, after he's gone through incredible loss, after he's gone through incredible trials and things that simply don't make sense to us, Job chapter 13 says this, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. They recognize that God's plan might be different than their own desires. Now, we can imagine enormous pressure on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to compromise. Everything in front of them, the king, the furnace, the music, their colleagues, and yet God was more real to them in that moment than anything else. When their faith was spiritually fireproof, their walk became fireproof. 
when their faith was spiritually fireproof, their walk became fireproof. Uh, they had good excuses to bow down, did they not? You know the saying, when in Rome, right? They, they had to keep up with the culture. Uh, they would lose their jobs, and so they would lose their livelihoods. That means they would lost, lose their ability to provide. They would lose their influence. They were men who were in a position to influence the king, and so if they did capitulate, they would lose their influence. After all, they might have said, we're not being asked to, re- asked to renounce God. Everyone else is doing it, Right? And yet when these men said, we think God is going to deliver us, but even if not, we're still going to obey. We're still not going to capitulate. We're not going to compromise. We're not going to take our faith and privatize it in this moment. Even if God does not come through, we're going to trust him. So we've read the story. They're inside the furnace, right? The Bible describes how that the furnace is so uh, so hot that the men who bound them and went to take them into the furnace, that the flames were so hot that those men were killed. They're bound, they're thrust into the furnace. And we don't know how long Nebuchadnezzar waits, but he waits and he starts double-checking the, the manifest report of who was thrown in. And he starts asking the question, wait, did not we throw three men into the furnace? Shocker, number one, they're still walking around, right? They're not bound, but they're walking around in the flames. Shocker, number two, there's not three of them. There's four of them. And here's this moment where Nebuchadnezzar comes face to face with his own actions and realizing that not only are they not bound, not only are they walking around, but there's four of them. And we'll talk about how he describes the fourth one later. Uh, As we think about the fire and we think about the burning furnace in front of them, I want us to consider for just a moment that fire kind of serves as a metaphor for our lives today. Fire represents the trials, the sufferings, the troubles that we will face. And so just three notes about trials, about suffering, about the troubles that we'll face from this passage. First, everyone will suffer in this life. Merry Christmas. It's important to embrace reality, isn't it? It's important for us as followers of Jesus Christ to embrace the truth of what our lives will face at some point in our life. Everyone will suffer in this life. Job, again, I've been reading Job just in my personal reading, and uh, he says some amazing things. Job, in chapter 5, he says this, Every man is born to trouble, just like sparks fly upward. In fact, he says, just in the reality of the physics of our world, everyone who is born will experience trouble. Everyone will. John said it, or Jesus said it this way in John's gospel, in the world you will have tribulation. And he's talking to followers of Jesus Christ. First Peter 4 says it this way, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, if you go through suffering in your life, that is an indication that you are alive. Everyone will suffer in this life. I want to follow that up by saying this. Suffering does not mean you're being punished. We have an unhealthy view of suffering sometimes in our life. 
where we'll look at someone's suffering or maybe ourselves suffer and we go through something really, really devastating and then we will assume God's punishment or wrath upon our life. Don't listen to the enemy of our soul. The enemy of our soul would love to convince you that your suffering is a result of God's anger or an expression of his punishment. To be clear, we all suffer. And that doesn't mean we're being punished. Now, there is a difference between suffering and consequences in our life. Right? I remember a few years ago, probably 10 years ago or so, I was going through just my own stuff. And um, I remember I was calling some people to... Uh, to get perspective on where I was in life. And I called my cousin, uh, actually I emailed him, and uh, Steve, and uh, I emailed Steve, and I was sharing with him some things, and I said, you know, and this is kind of what I've been learning through this period of my life, um, and, and, and even though this is God chastisement on my life, I feel like I've learned some really good lessons. He called me, which was right away, I think, right after he read the email, and he goes, hold up, Danny. He's allowed to call me Danny, by the way. Family is. <laughs> if you call me Danny, it's just going to be weird for both of us. <laughs> Please don't. He said, Danny, hold up. You weren't being chastised. You were reaping consequences on bad decisions. So there's a difference there. There's a difference between just reaping consequences of making bad decisions. For instance, if you blow all your money in the next 10 days and you call, uh, you call someone and you say, I'm going through this real trial, I'm broke. Well, trial of your own making, perhaps. Is that suffering? Probably not. You're probably going to learn a lesson, though, right? <laughs> doesn't mean you can't learn a lesson through bad decisions. It just doesn't mean your bad decision is suffering, right? So when we talk about suffering, we're not talking about these bad decisions that we make and then we reap consequences. We're talking about the inexplainable suffering that happens in our life. Why, why does a child have to go through abuse? Why do parents have to grieve the loss of their kids? Most of you know, uh, Libby and I, when we got married, we wanted to have a family, and a few years ago, we found out we, we probably couldn't have kids. And it was difficult. It was a gut punch, and it remains to be difficult nearly every day for me to reconcile what, why. And maybe there's something in your life where you, you have something in your life, and you have this question, why? Well, well everyone will suffer. We know that, Right? Uh, in fact, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're watching here today or if you're here today and you say, well, Daniel, I've lived a good life. I don't think I should suffer. Well, Jesus lived a pretty good life too. He lived a perfect life and he suffered more than he should. The question of why and why now and why this way, these are the unanswerable questions that we need to bring to the feet of Jesus. Elizabeth Elliot said it this way, whatever is in the cup that God is offering to me, whether it be pain and sorrow and suffering and grief, along with the many joys, I am willing to take it 
because I trust him. Because I trust him. This idea that we're being punished in these moments when we suffer is simply a lie straight from the pit of hell whose design is to penetrate your heart and your mind to create walls from you and other people and ultimately to cut you off from your heavenly father who wants to be there in the moment with you. So don't listen to that lie. Thirdly about suffering, if you believe in him and rest in him your suffering will relate to your character like fire relates to gold that's a mouthful isn't it so if you believe in him and you rest in him in other words you rest in his providence you rest in his in his wisdom and you trust him our sufferings will relate to our character like fire relates to gold. First Peter 1 says it this way, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through its t- though it is tested by fire, may be found the result to praise and to the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what does the fire do to the gold? Well, it's an intense experience designed to purify it to make it more beautiful than it had it not gone through the fire in the first place. So what do you do in order to grow instead of being destroyed by your suffering? We believe and we rest. Isaiah said it this way, fear not for I have redeemed you I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now here's the beautiful thing about how God helps us use our faith and the way we live out our faith for his glory. You see, God's presence wasn't only for his followers in that moment, for those observing as well. Look at verse 28. Verse 28 says this way, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angels and delivered his servants, who trusted him and set set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any other god except their own God. It's very interesting. I ask you to pay special attention to lowercase g on God and uppercase g on God as you ran through the narrative because at the very beginning of this narrative in Daniel chapter 3, and I think it's verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar asked this question, who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? He says, who is the God? I got this huge 90-foot monument of every God that we worship. And every single time we conquer a nation, we throw their God up there. And we're asking you to just simply acknowledge this image of all the gods that are up there, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Who's the God that's going to save you out of my hands? And by the end of the narrative, we see these words In verse 28 and 29, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He unknowingly answers the question who the God is that's going to save them because at uh, at the very end of this passage, this whole passage, Nebuchadnezzar speaks almost prophetically more than he knows. Look at verse 29. Verse 29 says it this way, therefore I make a decree, any people 
nation or language that speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn from limb to limb. Their house is laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Verse, we only have one word in the English language for, for God, and so we use capital letters to distinguish which God they're talking about. In verse 28, right before this verse, when he said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, he's identifying God as Elohim, Yahweh, the true God, the almighty God. And so to answer Nebuchadnezzar's question, who is the God that will be able to deliver them from his hands? Well, he's the God of the Hebrews. He's the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one through all these years has shown his presence, sometimes with a cloud of, uh, cloud of fire and a pillar uh, to, to show them the way in the garden of, uh, or in the, in the wilderness. Sometimes he would show up with manna just to let them know, you only need this today because I want you to trust me every single day. So when he says, who's the God? It's the God of the Hebrews. And here's the thing, you can trust him. He's the God who sends a Savior. Here he is. They are in the furnace. And he says, man, how many people did we throw? I thought it was just the three. There's Shadrach. There's Meshach and Abednego. They're walking around. And look up. There looks like there's a fourth who appears to be one of the sons of the gods. It's a description of Jesus there in the moment. Long before Christmas, Jesus shows up repeatedly. Why? Because he's our Savior and he's our Messiah. He's our long-awaited Savior and you can trust him. Nebuchadnezzar says, who is this God? Well, he's a God of great power. He's the one that was able to deliver them from fire. They use seven times as much as fuel as normal to crank up the heat on this furnace. And I'm telling you, maybe some of you are in it right now, and it feels like someone's cranking up the heat on your life right now. And you're going through a furnace. You're going through this trial. You're going through this fire moment where you've been sick more days than you can remember. Uh, you're weeks behind on Christmas. Uh, family's coming over. Like all of the things that are happening, relationships are fractured. And there's, there's no joy in the house. And we talked about joy and peace and love with Advent. And you're sitting there and you're thinking, I have none of those in my heart. And it feels like you're going through this furnace. And I'm telling you, God is more powerful than the furnace and you can trust him he says who is the god well he's the god worthy of full surrender here's shadrach meshach and abednego and they simply say there's this beautiful verse i want to say it's like verse 18 or so nebuchadnezzar goes through all his threats right he explains to him, I've done this, I've done this, it's this high, and this is the thing, and here's all the... I like that he explains all the musical instruments. Like, we needed to know which eight musical instruments he used. Also, it's interesting that bagpipes are included. I didn't know they were around that long, to be honest. No spiritual application, just threw me for a loop. He explains all the musical instruments, and he says, when they sound, you're going to bow. That's how this is going to work. Do you have any questions? Uh, you need to think about it, and if you think about it and you decide to bow, all will be well. I don't know who it was, but Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego, one of them said this, we don't need time to discuss. We don't need time. We don't need to answer you on this matter. We will not capitulate. 
We will not compromise. We will not bow down. We will not privatize our faith. And some of you are in business scenarios, and some of you are in teaching opportunities, and some of you are just in our community, and you're going to be asked to privatize your faith just a little bit. You're going to be asked to put it on a shelf just for a little bit, just for the holiday party, just so no one gets out of bent out of shape and all of these different ways. They're going to ask you to privatize your faith. And what's going to happen in that moment is you're going to have a decision to make. Is God worthy of fully surrendering your life? I'm telling you he is because you can trust him. Who is this God that's going to save you from my hand? Well, he's the God who demands exclusive allegiance. He says this, they should not serve nor worship any other God except their own God. It's interesting because when the angel of the Lord shows up, it's not like Gabriel who says, here's what God says. In fact, in the Old Testament, when you see this phrase, the angel of the Lord, it's, it's God showing up. It is a reference to the physical embodiment of Jesus. It's a physical form of God. It's a manifestation of God himself. It is a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus. Now, how can you get to you, how can you get yourself to the place where you go through suffering and it turns you into gold instead of something else? Well, we rest in acknowledging that Jesus Christ is walking with us in that moment. Because Jesus was thrown into the ultimate furnace for you already. I want you to go back in your minds to the Garden of Gethsemane with me. There Jesus is and he's sweating drops of grief off his brow. He knows the furnace that's in front of him, the cross, and he's there and he asks of the father if there's a way for this to pass let it be but not my will but yours he's in agony because he's about to be cast into a furnace far more terrible than nebuchadnezzar's furnace jesus was brought into the garden to the place where he stood and viewing he saw what he was about to suffer and in that moment he asked god for that cup to pass over him and yet he ends that prayer with these words but not my will but yours be done. This is Christmas, that he was born to die a death that was meant for us to pay a price that we could never pay to be raised again to give us new life. Nebuchadnezzar says this, who is the God that can save you from me? And by the end of the chapter, he says this, there's no God that can save like this. And he's right. It is God and God alone. There's no one else who could do this. Jesus Christ came to the earth at Christmas so that we could experience life because he would experience the wrath that we deserved. And that's how we're saved. By believing in him for salvation. In other words, he was thrown into the ultimate furnace that we deserve so that we could have it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you made a decision for Christ or would like prayer with someone from our church family, we would love to connect with you. You can message us on Facebook by searching Roseburg First Christian Church, or you can email us directly at roseburgfcc at gmail.com. In addition, if you're listening to this message on Apple or Spotify, 
We invite you to like, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast and share it on social media so others can be blessed as well. God bless you and have a beautiful day.